0: for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
1: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. I'm Emily Jane Fox, and thankfully, Joe Hagan, my trusted co-host, is back with us this week. Joe, we missed you.
2: Oh, thanks.
1: And you are... Feels
2: good.
1: You are... I'm not going to say where you are, but you are in an undisclosed location getting just phenomenal material for a story that will be in Vanity Fair magazine uh, come September. Is that right?
2: That is right. And um, I'm sitting in a hotel room. I can say it's in a Southern state doing what I love to do, which is uh, be on assignment for Vanity Fair doing Reporting, which is uh, something that was hard to do in the last year because of the obvious, and so I'm back out in the world, and uh, it's all part of the reemergence into the whatever normalcy will be.
1: Well, speaking of that reemergence and normalcy, we have a return guest today. He was actually the first guest that we had on. When we took over this very podcast, we have Danny Meyer back on the podcast, famed New York restaurant entrepreneur uh, who started Union Square Hospitality Group and a little burger joint called Shake Shack. And... I've heard of it. I feel like you must have. Uh, Danny Meyer, when he came on a year ago, had just laid off 2,000 employees. His restaurants were completely shuttered. The city was a very scary place and the prospect of running a business here was was even scarier. And we talked earlier this week about everything that they faced and where things stand right now and where things are going to go in the future. And the thing about, about Danny Meyer is he's been in the business for a really long time and he has started and operated many, many successful businesses in the city and has tried to be the kind of leader that is at the forefront of making decisions about the kind of business models that work in restaurants. And as we know, over the last year, um, the restaurant industry in particular, you know, it's such a hard business to operate. Uh, The margins are so slim. The you know, the the way wages work in restaurants make no sense. Um, And Danny Meyer has has really tried to be at the forefront of getting in front of models that may make sense for the future. And he's very open about the fact that some of those models have failed and they haven't worked in practice. And maybe they sounded great in theory, but when it comes to actually implementing them, they they haven't worked. And so it's always interesting to me to hear his thoughts on the industry and on best practices and what he thinks is the next step. I think it's particularly interesting to me right now because um, I'm back in the city. And Joe, I know that you've come back into town a few times, but I will say like, even since I've been here, which is three weeks or so, things have rapidly shifted And when I first landed here, I was shocked at how alive everything felt. I was so nervous to come back. I thought... Me too. I I really thought that like the city was going to change and the way I felt about the city had changed because I had such a lovely year in Los Angeles and it's beautiful and it's sunny and you're self-contained. And I really thought I wasn't going to love it the same way. And I actually think I loved it more when I came back. Um, But even in the last three weeks, it is just... Pop in here,
2: yeah. I I, can. I add that I had the same experience. I came back. I was so I was moved by how much life was there and how much I missed it. And to your point about Danny Meyer and the restaurant industry, I mean, you know, restaurants in New York City. I mean, it's like a bellwether for the life of the city. And it was back; places were open, and you know, as you noticed. Uh, people in New York will know this, but if you haven't been there in a while, they've moved a lot of the dining onto the street in these sort of you know open kind of cabanas on the street. It almost feels like Europe when you're walking around, it's like this open-air dining scene, which I found kind of lovely. It feels like we're going to come back, as people have been talking about just life in general in America, there, that there will be a, a new kind of normal it will not be like it was before. And in some ways, they're going to be things we miss, but they're also going to be things that I think that we're going to love about the way things have changed. And, you know, the restaurant business um, in New York, I, I'm sure it's going to be hard business-wise and they need people to uh, become comfortable again and come out in the right numbers, I'm sure. But my eating experiences when I came back to New York were as good as I'd ever had in the city and as wonderful of an experience as I'd had. So there, I'm, I don't know how Danny feels if there's, if he's optimistic, but I imagine he is.
1: Yeah. I think that there's, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the interview and and he'll tell you all about it. But, uh, anecdotally I'm finding it very hard to get a reservation for dinner and, uh, like, like very hard. And, and even if we're, you know, Lee's, Lee's in production on a show right now so his hours are crazy um, and a few times he's gotten home and we've gone out to dinner at 9 o'clock on a Tuesday just in our neighborhood walking to good places in our neighborhood and they're like sorry we can't seat you at 9 o'clock on a Tuesday for two wow. uh, and that to me I've never been more excited to not be able to get a table at a restaurant in my life And yes, yes. and it's just It has been such a hard year for them, and even with, you know, the bustling city as it is right now, there is a 16-month hole that they are trying to fill, and because restaurant margins are what they are, um, it's not like they operate, you know, even if they're operating at 100%, which they're allowed to do for the first time this week in New York City, the margins don't allow you to make up for 16 months of essentially being shuttered, and not only being shuttered, but you know, Danny and I talked about the costs of making those outdoor villages, right? And the costs mm-hmm. of all of the safety precautions that they're putting into place, the testing, the shields, the gloves, the masks, the, all the thing, and, and then the psychological toll that that takes on employees. And, and one of the things we talked about was that the labor force has really changed because um, a lot of people did move out of the city and yeah. um you know they're they're having a hard time filling the jobs that they let people go from and it's a really interesting thing that that he talks about and something that i hadn't really even thought about that the the composition of people who live in the city now who stayed in the city is different and one of the things that was really interesting was was as we were talking about this he was saying that one of the things he's really focused on going forward is Making sure when they're hiring people back that their offices and their restaurants are more reflective of the way the cities and the country looks, so um, yeah. diversity is a big priority for him. And uh, I think it should be something you know he he sets the tone for a lot of what the restaurant industry ends up doing. And I hope that this is another one of those instances where he is thinking about something and going to implement something, and then other restaurateurs and restaurant owners uh, follow and think about the same, same things. So the interview is fantastic. And before we get to it, I just want to, um, quickly talk about what is going on in the Middle East, just very briefly. Um, because I, there are many, many people who know a lot more than I do and who are way more qualified to give you your information on this than I do, than I am. Um, But it is very scary what is happening, and it is really sad. And um, one of the scariest things to me and saddest things to me is that people are not getting their information from people who should be giving out information. And it is part of our internet age that we live in an outrage culture. We live in a culture where... Uh, A lot of people get their quick news from Twitter or Instagram. And as we know, those things provide zero context. Uh, And there are a lot of people who are spending, who have spent their entire lives trying to make sense of a very complicated emotional history in a very complicated emotional place. And uh, those people have a hard time making sense of this. So just take the time to be informed about what is happening, read, listen to people who know what they're talking about. Don't get your news from an influencer. Don't get your instant reactions from pundits on Twitter. Like this is a very sensitive thing. And my heart breaks for everybody in the region who is scared, whose children are scared. And I will just say, as a Jewish person, it is, you know, we, we moved into a new apartment in New York for the first time. And I saw my family for the first time a few weeks ago. And my grandmother asked me if she could give us a mezuzah for our apartment. It's a, something you put in your doorway as a Jewish person, blesses the home. Um, and I said no, because I didn't want to be identified as a Jewish person. And. It's just a scary time. It's a scary yeah. time. And that is a scary thought for me to have. And particularly as I am having a Jewish child enter the world very soon. Um, it's not a decision that I ever thought I would have to tell my grandmother. I, I didn't want to have outwardly facing. Um, mm. and, and everyone on every side of this has fears like I have fears. And that people are feeling the way that I'm feeling on every side of this, that's what is, is heartbreaking. And so um, let's just all take the time to read and be informed and to, if you pray, pray for peace. If you meditate, meditate for peace, whatever it is, mm-hmm. just just hope for a resolution here that brings peace to everybody in the situation because it's scary and sad. And I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that it was happening in the world.
2: Yeah it's so frustrating. And, um, it's one of those things that divides people. And it, as you said earlier, our media state of our media doesn't have the nuance to kind of uh, comprehend it in a way that doesn't just sometimes add more injury, you know? And, um, I, I, mean, I follow it through both the news and through, you know, people I know in Israel and friends who have really strong feelings about it of course it's divided even liberals right um because everybody has such really specific strong emotions around it and um i hope that um and i don't know what's going on behind the scenes but i hope that um the biden administration can bring some diplomacy to bear behind the scenes so in the interim let's take a step back take a deep breath and um think about uh, this next interview and I'm going to be educating myself in the interim.
1: I think that's all we can do. And I think just, just read and think about people and and think about your friends who may be affected by this. And there's no easy way to transition back to, uh, back to this interview, but I will say that um, it's worth your time. Both of those things are worth your time. So let's just get to it and get going and, we will look forward to your feedback on all of these things. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker
2: podcast for the culturally curious. Each week we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love: books, movies, television, music, art, and I always want to talk about celebrity gossip too. Of course. What
1: are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out.
2: I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us
1: for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) Welcome back to Inside the Hive to Danny Meyer, who I believe was my first guest in taking over this podcast. So Danny, thank you so much for coming back.
3: It's great to be back with you, Emily. And I guess that our Last conversation didn't ruin your ratings, which I was really afraid of. So good for you.
1: Well, you were the perfect place to start because when we spoke just about exactly a year ago, all anyone was talking about was the restaurant industry. And you are kind of the the top of the heap there. You are, you are the king of New York dining. And that was really where everyone was focused on and no one knew it was going to happen. And I asked you so many questions about where the industry was and where you thought it was going. And when we we last talked, you were outside of the city. All of your restaurants were closed. Uh, You had said to me at the time that you were sort of racking your brain about how your restaurants could bring the kind of customer experience that, that your diners were used to getting from you, but you hadn't come up with anything yet. So a year later, tell me what you came up with over the last year to both serve your, your customers and help your employees and just bring the restaurant industry in New York back to where it is today.
3: Yeah, well, you know, you're, what you said at the outset is absolutely right. The, the first thing is I made a one of probably – 8000 mistakes by at the at the very very outset when we closed all of our restaurants back on March the 13th or March the 12th of 2020 i had spoken to a bunch of restaurant colleagues and you know people we know um, from asia people from western europe and the reason i did that was that they had each been hit with this virus before New York had been. And I really wanted to try to get a read on when they were able to reopen so that we could get a sense of how long we could actually survive as a business with how many people on our team, Mm. Um, you know, before all the coffers ran dry. And so this mistake I made was that everybody in Asia was saying that it was exactly nine months to the day that they were able to reopen. And they started talking about all the safety protocols. And And so as a result of that, we laid off a lot of people because there's no way that we could make it through nine weeks with, with our payroll with no revenue. Because back then, we couldn't even ask our people to come to work to you know make a cup of coffee for themselves, never mind sell it to somebody else. And the goalposts just get, kept getting moved further and further and further away. Um, it's not clear that the first reported case in China was the first case. And it's also not clear that nine weeks later, they were truly back in business. Um, and, and, you know, there were all kinds of relapses with our friends in Great Britain who I had spoken to and, um, and in Italy, etc. So. We ended up having to go through not one, but three consecutive rounds of layoffs, yeah. which was just it was an awful experience for certainly the people being laid off and certainly the, the whole culture of our, of our company, which has always been a, a people first culture. And that's when we pretty much had to shift into this mode of saying, you know, this is not what we are here for. We're here to create places that create pleasure for people. Um, through both what's on their plate and how they feel treated. And we didn't get into this business and haven't built up an amazing team of colleagues over 35 years for the purpose of saying, I'm sorry, we don't have work for you. That just just was completely the opposite Mm -hmm. of our history. So we immediately at that point set up a 501c3, we called it um, USHG Hugs, and we were able to raise uh, just shy of 2 million dollars which we granted out to team members we set up a board it was all you know very official and that lasted throughout most of the summer and that was a good thing because the one positive thing that the congress did back then was to create the extended unemployment benefits right. which would go through the year so you know, and then we just try to stay in touch with people, even though we were no longer their employer. We created job boards for people uh, to get their to get jobs with like spirited businesses that were actually hiring. Wow! Um, Whole Foods, I remember being one. Um, you know, many many of the companies in e commerce were hiring people. Right. Some some of our colleagues even became delivery people. Uh, so it was just this year where we we basically said, how do we squeeze olive oil out of a stone? Because yes. that's, that's, that's what it was. And every one of our businesses tried something. Right about somewhere after Memorial Day, daily provisions opened, allowed, you know, like five people to come in and work. And they were wearing, they weren't quite wearing hazmats to go to work, but it sure seemed like it. It was everybody was afraid in those days that COVID equaled death. You know, we lost one of our former colleagues, Floyd Cardozo, the sh- former chef of Tabla. And so it, it just wasn't, it just was depressing. And of course, with um, the murder of George Floyd, which led to all kinds of protests throughout New York City, including in our neighborhood right here in Union Square, it just was, it was not our city. And, you know, to constantly be looking over your shoulder to see is one of our employees going to have COVID and therefore have to close for two weeks. And that kind of thing was happening up and down. And finally, uh, probably somewhere in July, we tried opening a couple places with outdoor dining. And one of the really good things the city had done was to permit outdoor dining on the sidewalk and even in the street Gramercy Tavern's block was closed to traffic, and you know we just had to learn a new musculature. Nobody really knew what they were doing. Um, the guests didn't know how to how to eat food while wearing a mask and and when they were allowed to take the mask off and put it back on and we were taking everybody's temperature, which we still do. We were asking people to use a QR code on their table for contact tracing we eventually got plexiglass dividers for all of our tables all things that you know were completely anathema to the type of environment that you try to create with a restaurant and then here here's the fascinating moment we we in the restaurant industry in New York were just pulling out our hair trying to convince both city government and state government that it was okay to open at some capacity indoors mm in addition to outdoors. And there was a meeting on the 1st of September in Governor Cuomo's office. There were about four restaurateurs there. Uh, It was a pretty cool experience. I got my first COVID test uh, on entering the office, which was my first rapid COVID test. Wow. Which you had to get to enter. So that was kind of a nice bonus. First time I put on a tie in about a year.
1: <laughs> and last, uh, I'm assuming.
3: I believe so, yep. <laughs> and we were able to persuade the governor to allow restaurants to open indoors, albeit uh, he would only agree at that point for a 25% indoor capacity.
1: What was your argument in September for allowing that? Is it, Is it... Here's the health data that suggests if we're distanced and at that capacity, it's safe. Is it this is an economic necessity? Is it all of the above?
3: I, I think you're right. I think it was all of the above. I think that the health data at that point, the positivity rate in New York City was actually lower than most, if not all, of the rest of the state. And meanwhile, the rest of the state was permitted to open at 50% at that mm-hmm. point. And it just just didn't make sense to us. There were some mitigating arguments that, that we heard such as well in the rest of the state workers don't have to take the subway to come to work. Right. And I thought that was a that was a fair argument, but totally. you know, I I just also felt that at some point this is going to be over. That that's been my kind of guiding vision throughout the entire thing that this too shall pass you don't know when but this will not be the thing that ends the world as mm-hmm. we know it and so if you believe that then really the relevant questions are okay how are you going to use the time productively and wisely and who will you be when when it's done so mm-hmm. those are really the two questions that we've spent our time thinking about but getting back to the the indoor dining the agreement we made with the governor which felt reasonable. I mean, we really hoped we were going to go from zero to 50 rather than from zero to 25 because, no, everybody was just hemorrhaging money at this point. And we wanted to be able to hire people back. We had been, incidentally, able to hire back about 30 people by working with a not-for-profit called Rethink, which through corporate funding, in our case, came from a company called Brookfield Properties. Mm -hmm. We were able to not only hire back people in restaurants that could not open to the public, so three of our restaurants, but we could buy products from our suppliers. And then the food that these cooks cooked was delivered by Rethink to uh, three different locations in the South Bronx.
0: Wow. And so that
3: was a really good win-win, but it was still only 30 people. And on March the 11th of 2020, we had about 2,200 employees.
0: Mm. And at
3: this point, we were down to at a low 45 and at, you know, somewhere between 45 and a hundred employees. So anyway, we were able to to persuade the governor to let us open 25% indoor. We were able to serve some tables outdoor and we actually had a month uh, where, and it was the month of October where for the first time in the entire year, we made, you know, call it $200, but that was a (laughs) heck of a lot better than, losing tens of thousands of dollars, which we had been doing. So the deal was that if positivity rates stay this low, then as of November 1st, we're going to permit you to open at 50% indoors. Now, that was a really, really important thing because guess what happens in November in New York? It gets really cold outside. It does. And the whole notion of serving shivering New Yorkers in these shanty towns... (laughs) you know, a bowl of soup that gets cold between the kitchen and outdoors. It's just not a great deal. And sure, we were able to make deals to get propane heaters. Although in New York City, you can't store propane in your building. And so you would have to have it delivered every afternoon and then picked up late every night. And there's another expense for no return. So... Can I ask well, you yeah. because I've been
1: thinking about this so much I I as I told you before we started recording I had been out of New York until about 2 weeks ago for the entire year and I've come back to basically like a New York that resembles Europe with all of these amazing restaurant structures on the sidewalk. I had seen pictures of it and I had heard so much about it from my friends who were here, but it's, there's really nothing like seeing it. And it makes you just love New York and New Yorkers so much because there's just instant innovation that happens. But as I walk by these beautifully decorated structures that have all this plexiglass and, and are designed gorgeously and have heaters and flowers and ornate light fixtures and tables that are secured to the ground, I can't help but think this is a bloody fortune and you guys are already losing so much money. How are the economics of that working and this cottage industry of the plexiglass and propane deliverers? They must be the ones making the killing here, but you guys are footing the bill.
3: Well, it's, it's a really interesting question because last summer uh, going into the fall, very, very few people were spending any money on their structure. That was, that was the shantytown era. And you didn't spend money because of two things. You didn't have the money in your business. And number two, who knew if this thing was going to last anyway?
1: Sure.
3: Um, in terms of being permitted by the city. And so we, I, I remember we actually just shut down everything about 10 days before Thanksgiving. It turned out that Not only did the city not go to 50% on November 1st, not because of New York, but because of what was happening in California, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, all over the place, the governor was afraid that, that all those macro trends were about to hit New York City. And so not only did we not go from 25 to 50, but we went from 25 back down to zero. And I could see the writing on the wall for that. And I could also see the writing on the wall that, that you know, trying to serve someone who's frozen under eight layers of clothing for the months of December, January, and February in New York City. And we had a lot of snow as it turned out. We made the right choice not to do it. All that said, a wonderful thing happened and uh, a wonderful trifecta of things happened. And I'll never forget this moment. It was in March and not only did we start to hit the first wisps of spring, which meant that, oh my gosh, we won't have to have propane heaters forever. It might actually be nice to eat outside. But then vaccinations were happening. For the first time, you could get a vaccination in our industry. Um, in early March, the restaurant industry was, was promoted to the front of the line along with, with other food uh, industries as being essential workers. And that meant that it started to become safe to hire people back for their jobs without worrying that in a closed kitchen, it might not be safe to work together, even with all the masks and Purell you could imagine. Sure. And, and then the, the next thing that happened was that the city started to give an indication that these outdoor structures might be made permanently legal. And once we got all those green lights, and I might add the opportunity to serve 50% in our dining rooms, which was a big, big deal, it really seemed like the clock was not gonna, for the first time in over a year, the clock was not gonna be turned back. It wasn't gonna be, you know, hey, you trusted me, um, which is kind of what every single month had been. It, It kept being like a come on, that this was getting better only to get worse again. So this moment in March was truly the first time we all started to feel positively. And then we, we kind of pulled the camera way, way back and started looking at the city and asking ourselves, okay, how is, how and when is New York going to come back and what's it going to take and what role can restaurants play in that whole structure? And, and so If you look back at the entire previous year, the city was basically it was almost like a neutron bomb had gone off in the city. Every building was completely intact, but there were no people. And that was for all of last spring. And then when it was very, very clear that this was going to continue on beyond the spring, many, many New Yorkers just stayed away um, and they didn't come back. Like, like, I'm not going to spend a hot summer in a city that is dangerous. And, you know, I might get sick if I'm there and there's nothing doing there anyway. So they stayed away and then came fall. And we all had the great hope of school reopening, except it didn't, or it might have. And then they changed it. And then it did. And then it didn't. And so many people stayed away again. And then it was, it was the winter time, And many New Yorkers said, if it's still not reopened, I'm still not coming back. And so now now that we have this wonderful moment of positivity where you can feel with the warm weather and with the opportunity to dine outside and to dine inside, and as of today, actually, as of today, New York City restaurants are permitted to serve for the first time since March the 12th of 2020, 100% capacity indoors, albeit spacing at the bar. You can only sit Next to somebody who you're with. Otherwise, you have to be six feet away from someone else. So that's kind of our last vestige of capacity restrictions. But here we are. And I believe that we're on the precipice of having a really, really strong summer where people begin to reclaim their city, especially with so many people vaccinated. And I think that the big, big renaissance is going to happen. In the fall, because I believe school will be on. I believe the lights of Broadway will be on. And I think that that's going to lead to more and more people not only moving back to the city, back to their homes, but tourists coming in.
1: I was just going to say... And people doing business here. Yeah, and, and and people returning to offices and work lunches and functions at night. And I think, I think we are headed in that direction. You're right. And I specifically wanted you on this week because we are at the dawn of hundred percent capacity in your restaurants. And I have a few questions about your thoughts on that. And particularly after the CDC issued new guidelines about mask wearing indoors, I just have a lot of personal questions that I, I, I know you've been thinking about. So how do you think both diners feel about being at hundred percent capacity inside? And how do you think your employees feel about that?
3: Well, the good news is that because we now have the opportunity to serve indoors and outdoors, yes, you can make your choice. And we ask everyone who makes a reservation, would you prefer to sit outdoors or indoors? The ones who feel comfortable indoors are dining indoors. The ones who don't feel comfortable are dining outdoors. And you know, with respect to our staff members, I think it's probably the same thing. We haven't really heard many staff members fearing working indoors. They know that we have, you know, the most advanced possible filtration systems indoors. They know that every table who dines in our restaurants gets a little bottle of sanitizer with the restaurant's logo on it. And that's the new, that's the new matches of 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 our generation. (laughs) Um, And they know that when they come to work, We have been piloting a program with Clear, the business you may know from airports, which is called Health Pass. And it's just one more step to let our team members know that they're working with people who are healthy. Mm. Um, This week, we're also, um, in fact, I've got one in my hands right now, distributing not as a, a mandate, but because the CDC guidelines were just a little hard to understand, um, and, you know, the notion of, well, if you've been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask outside or even inside if you're with people who you know have been vaccinated. Okay, well, what does that mean if you're in a restaurant and you don't know everybody? That's exactly um, right. Right. So it's it's a little bit fuzzy. As a matter of fact, SNL did a kind of a fun piece making fun of it with Kate McKinnon doing her Dr. Fauci. Mm-hmm. And so we we just bought a ton of these little buttons that say uh, vaccinated and we're going to make them available to people if they want as a way to basically ward off that uncomfortable moment where am I, can I shake hands with that person or not? Can I hug that person or not? Is my server vaccinated or not? Is the guest who I'm pouring wine for, whose napkin I'm clearing vaccinated or not. I, I think these are those are questions on everybody's mind today as they walk the sidewalks of the city, as they dine in restaurants, as they buy their groceries. And it's just an idea we had. And I know for sure that I would never say you must wear this to our team members if they've been vaccinated. But I think it's a nice opportunity to make life less uncomfortable. So that's I agree. we'll see we'll see what that does.
1: And I don't know the answer to this question. Are you allowed to mandate that anyone who works in your restaurant has to be vaccinated?
3: You know, that's another one of these things that that the government has not provided clarity on and therefore every single apartment building, business, yes. office, etc is really kind of on their own. And so we have a pretty big population of people who, for cultural reasons, uh, may or may not be vaccinated. Mm. And so what my hope is, is that no, we won't mandate it. But the guidelines pretty clearly say that if you have been vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. And so as of this minute, everyone in our office, vaccinated or not, when they walk around, you know, to the to make a cup of coffee or to the restroom or whatever, they're wearing a mask. Mm. Um, I will tell you that every single day for the last two weeks, even before the CDC's latest guidelines were released, you could see kind of an additional 2% of the people in Manhattan not wearing masks. And Manhattan had been like close to 100%. Yes. And so I'm going to guess right now after the, cdc announcement maybe 30 percent of new yorkers are not wearing masks and i just feel like it's one of these it's a new musculature that everybody's kind of sticking their toe in the water and trying to decide am i safe and and am i doing the right civic thing because i think mask wearing as least as i understood it was always more about what you're not giving someone else than what you may get from someone else
1: It's so interesting because because I had been out of the city for so long and in Los Angeles first of all you don't walk anywhere so you don't see the kinds of people that you see in New York you're just you're just on top of people here in a way that you're definitely not in Los Angeles and you're just you're just not around observing human behavior in the same way. And so when I came here, I was just kind of like, I kind of felt like a, what a tourist must feel when they see Times Square the first time and you're picking up on behavior that is foreign to you.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: in the two weeks since I've been here, I have, I have observed a big change in the way that people have behaving or are behaving. Even in the last two weeks, I feel like everyone was wearing a mask when I first got here And now everyone kind of has their masks around their chin.
3: Yeah, they're protecting their chin from COVID, which is
1: good. (laughs) And, and, And my behavior has changed in those two weeks. I was so, I was all masked up all the time and now I'm fully vaccinated and I trust science and I trust the vaccines and I trust the CDC. And if they're saying to me it is safe to walk around outside and eat indoors without a mask, I believe them. And- my behavior has changed. So it's so fascinating. New York is really just, uh, people are are civic minded in a way because you're on top of each other, uh, but they're also smart and savvy and are quick to adapt to things.
3: I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And I, it kind of reminds me a little bit of after 9-11, that it took different people different amounts of time to feel comfortable again flying on airplanes because and that was a pretty massive shock to all of our systems, and you know the metal detectors were, in some ways, comforting to people. But still, if if you were someone who was certain that it could happen again and it might happen again while you're flying, it took you a long time to come back. For other people, it was like I'm I'm I didn't even need a metal detector. I'm ready to fly again, and I feel like the masks are going to be. A version of this the you know, the difference with COVID is you can't see it. You have absolutely no idea who's carrying it. In fact, they may not even know they're carrying it when they are carrying it. It's just, it's just a bizarre thing. So, but I think that every time someone like you goes out to eat or goes to an art museum um, soon enough, you'll go to a concert or a Broadway play um, you know, I've flown on a couple of airplanes. Um, I've survived every single thing I've done. And and it starts to build up a sense of, you know what, I should be trusting this input. We are getting back. I just think that, you know, none of us has ever had 16 months to change our complete behavior with every single thing we do, how we work, how we live, how we eat, how we receive our mail, you know, how we communicate how we don't get hugged and give hugs. It's just two short weeks ago was the first time I shook hands with somebody Mm. in one of our restaurants and, of course, had to whip the Purell out of my pocket (laughs) out of sight so they wouldn't be offended. Of course. Immediately thereafter. Guess what? This week I've probably shaken hands five times, and I wait ten minutes before I put on the Purell. (laughs) Yeah,
1: you get to a sink, you wash your hands like you normally would, and and it's really like – I was so nervous about coming back to the city. I was so nervous about sort of reentering society because I thought, do I really even want to be doing the things that I did before? And as you slowly start reintroducing things, it comes back a lot faster and easier than you could have imagined it would. It kind of just all starts to feel very normal again and, and very quickly. But, but there are some things that I've noticed are different and I want your take on them. As I've been eating out at more restaurants, um, I've noticed that menus, especially in New York, are a little smaller. Am I wrong? You're right. What's happening?
3: Well, it started really during COVID that you had to pare back your menu for a whole lot of reasons. Number one, a restaurant couldn't afford to keep as many ingredients on hand. Many restaurants um, couldn't have enough cooks in the kitchen to cook all that food because we were – trying to be as strict uh, and safe as we could possibly be about not having people working on top of each other. Mm. Kitchens are not made for cooks to be six feet apart. And so the only choice was to have fewer menu items. And it turned out that New Yorkers were so happy just to get out of the house and not have everything be about (laughs) either cooking or, you know, having food delivered in a plastic container that they were happy to go to a restaurant and have five choices were once there were 10 and same thing happened With you, you would, you would probably notice the exact same thing with wine lists. Yes. You know, there was a time at um, Union square cafe last summer where I was, I was dining in my own restaurant and was surprised that for the first time in my entire career, I was unable to get an espresso because we couldn't afford to bring our barista back. So everything was kind of pared back. But in the service of saying, it's better to be open. You can still be nice and offer hospitality. Um, We even learned how to smile with our eyes since nobody could see (laughs) our faces. Um, But I think you'll start to see more, you know, the new musculature I think we're all trying to learn right now is this is no longer a dress rehearsal. We are open I, I think it's a healthy thing that that previously bloated menus don't need to be nearly as long as they once were. But I think we can let out a little bit of the reduction and get back to being ourselves a little bit,
1: yeah. I want to ask you about the where you think the the future of restaurants is going. But before I do, I saw you say in an interview recently, that you are having a hard time hiring people back that the labor market has shifted and I'm curious what you're seeing and and also I know you've let you know 2000 or so people go or you had to let them go early in the pandemic I'm wondering how many people you've hired back and what you're noticing in the labor market as you're starting to really reopen and operate at a capacity that is closer to where you were 16 months ago.
3: Well, every everything you just said is absolutely true. It's happening all over the country. And it's interesting, one one of my questions is, how much of this is specific to our industry? How much is specific to New York? Because if if you ask the average person who works in an office, what percentage of your office is now occupied on a daily basis. What you'll pretty much, I mean, the answer that I keep getting is really no more than 10 to 15%. That means that nine, 85 to 90% of office workers are continuing to work remotely um, for this period of time. And what a lot of offices outside of the real estate industry, which is has a vested interest in saying time to come back to work, and also the financial industry, which I think is kind of accelerated that. Most other offices, including ours, have basically said, you're welcome to come to work. Please be vaccinated. We are Mm -hmm. saying, please be vaccinated. We haven't mandated it yet. Um, But we've also said that the expectation that you will come back to work begins right after Labor Day. And when you do come back to work, the expectation is going to be that we're going to start with what's known as a two, three, two model where you take two days off and you work three days in the office and two days remotely. Okay. So that's pretty cool for offices, but in the restaurant industry, you have to have a hundred percent of your team or you can't serve a hundred percent of your guests. And so it's not surprising to me in a city like New York, where so many people left, because there was no restaurant work in New York, so they went where the restaurant work was, or some people left the industry altogether, or some people may be waiting this out before they start getting back on public transportation and working late nights. I mean, keep in mind that public transportation didn't open uh, through midnight until very, very recently. Yeah. There's also childcare, which is a major, major issue for people because- you know, the only way to afford child care is to be working, but it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. Sure. Um, so it's a very, very real thing. And I think that the opportunity for our industry is kind of amazing. I think this challenge provides a moment in a year where there's been an amazing racial injustice reckoning that there is probably a lot of people in New York City who may never have worked in our industry before, who really, really want a job, who have a good work ethic, a heart for hospitality. And I think we have an amazing moment to make our restaurants look a whole lot more like New York than, than they probably did going into the pandemic. And so that's what we're focusing on. And I'm hopeful that we can find ways, maybe working with New York City, to... Create bridges between people who are seeking jobs and the many, many restaurants that are desperately seeking talent
1: that is fantastic, and I think that uh, I am so heartened to hear you say that, and I know that so many people will be heartened to hear you say that not because not only because you are a huge employer in the city but because you are an industry leader and I think a lot of the things that you do get a lot of attention rightfully and hopefully you are setting the standard for other people to step up and make that kind of decision and make that a priority. I think that's hugely important. And I think it's important because just recently, Mayor de Blasio named you as the chairman of the New York City Economic Development Corporation, which is a big thing. So I want to know... What you are focused on as the chairman and and how you're planning to, you know this is a very challenging time for this city and the the economic development and all the opportunities. what are you guys focused on? How are you going about making some changes? Who are you listening to? it's It's a big, important role.
3: Well, it's a thank you. It's a big, important organization. I, I know that for sure because I've been, I've been on a learning curve that looks like a flagpole. It's so (laughs) steep. And I'm just asking all kinds of questions. The organization is quite remarkable. It was created in the 1970s, it turns out, um, when the city was practically bankrupt. And it was created as an authority as opposed to a city agency for the purpose of allowing the mayor to get things done with a much, much longer View than what is typically the more narrow, short term political projects that have to go through city council, etc., and with a much longer strategic view to create jobs and tourism and prosperity for the city well, well into the future. So I'm learning like crazy. It turns out that um, the EDC owns the public land. Um, and even some of the waterways around New York City and wow. can make, has made decisions that have led to things like the High Line, all the piers that you see, the seaport. Sometimes it's it's not for profits like Hot Bread Kitchen, which gets space up in Harlem. Sometimes it's arts districts like uh, in Brooklyn, where there's theater for new audience. Um, Hunts Point Market mm. as a way to generate economic activity. Uh, for the food industry, and so, as I learn more and more and more about the organization, and I realize that uh, I was appointed at a time when the mayor has you know something like seven months left on his term, I understand that really the the limit to what I can do is to do the best I can to cheerlead for the hospitality industry, the cultural uh, parts of the city, to try to bring. People back to the city and to try to do it in a way where we begin in a much better way than we ended, you know, before the pandemic. And so it's it's truly thinking about just jawboning for things that can help. Like I, I will take zero credit for the fact that we now know outdoor dining is going to be permanent, but I can promise you that I made it very very clear that that was an incredibly important thing for me because of what it not just what it means for our industry to be able to have the additional space to serve people, but the outward sign that New York is open is Mm. just, you just can't, you just cannot overstate emotionally how powerful that is, as opposed to walking by closed signs and for rent signs. And it's going to take a long time to to fill those spaces. But anyway, I'm giving you a long answer to this question. I feel like trying to create this bridge for job seekers uh, and, and businesses that are job wanters. I think we can, we can do that. And so for me, basically what I've, what I see I can do in seven months is listen to lots of great ideas from New Yorkers and convey them to people.
1: You talk about the end of the mayor's term, and I just have to ask you who you're supporting for the mayor's race.
3: Um, I've, same way I did in the presidential election, which was to support three or four different people mm. who I think would make great mayors and it's all knowable so you can go online and figure it out if you want to. Steve a front runner. Well it's interesting that many of the people who I've supported um, are in low single digits right now. So
1: mm. it's a crazy race. I, I honestly have no idea who's going to win, but it's it's I feel like it'll be down to the wire. You you mentioned something earlier that I just want to circle back to as we sort of round up our time together. You said you were asking yourself throughout this whole year, who you guys will be when this is all done. And I scribbled that down because that's exactly what I want to know. What do you think your business will look like? I know we talked about this a bunch last year. The way that the restaurant industry was working for many years to come was not sustainable. And COVID obviously expedited a lot of problems and uh, an end to a lot of restaurants that probably would have closed their doors in years to come. Uh, and all of that was sped up, but, but it was not sustainable as it was. And uh, I think that perhaps diner preferences have changed. I don't know. Um, But certainly the way people like you are conceptualizing how the business will operate in years to come has shifted, and you've had a lot of time to really envision that. So I'm wondering where your head is on all of those things 16 months into this.
3: I I think the the biggest challenge that our industry has faced for its own survival, to your point, is the ability to, in in a very, very crowded market of restaurants— to charge enough money that allows you to pay people enough money to work in those restaurants. And we, we've emerged from COVID with a whole lot of different revenue opportunities that didn't exist before. So the simplest model of a restaurant is that you pay money in a presumably high-rent district, which is convenient to where people live and work and play. And the limit, this is historical, the limit of what you can generate out of that box, for lack of a better word, also known as a restaurant, is contained within the four walls of that restaurant. And Mm -hmm. I think that when we went through a year where we were unable to generate $1 out of those four walls, we had to learn all kinds of new opportunities, Um, selling wine and food to be picked up out the door, um, having food delivered, having food shipped across the country. Almost every one of our restaurants is now doing that, which means that that if you can find the right platform, um, ours being Gold Belly, you can all of a sudden take away the notion of where someone lives. They can still mm. have access to to what you do. And they just they,
1: raised, or, or are about to announce, they're raising so much money, which is unbelievable.
3: They just did. They just announced that that they raised an, a huge amount of money, and we were investors about four or five years ago. Wow. Uh, in in Goldbelly, but they've that's one of many, many new ways that restaurants are looking at what they do. But getting back to the first thing I said, our industry finds itself right at the crosshairs of many of the kind of cultural questions going on in the country right now. And to to a degree, at least in terms of what people eat and how they eat, we've been at the crosshairs for many, many years. And I think a lot of people in the full-service fine dining restaurant industry, in fact, I'd say even in the chain industry, have been really, really successful at helping consumers to understand that it is worth paying a little bit more money for ingredients that are either better for the planet or or the treated, in the case of animal protein, that treated the animal better. Mm. And I think that um, what we've not done a, a full job of yet is really the third leg, which is how do we treat the people who work in restaurants? Mm. We, we care about the animals and the plants and the earth, and we care about your body What about the people who work in restaurants? And the compensation model of our industry has been broken for a long, long time. Um, We've spent five years trying to challenge the American tipping system. And we recanted on that um, during COVID because it was completely unfair to, to tell guests, quite frankly, who wanted to be really, really generous with the courageous team members who came back to work early on during COVID and it was unfair for us to tell those guests, you may not say thank you. And to tell our staff members, you must tell that guest you're not allowed to say thank you to me. Mm. So we went back to a, a tipping model. However, we didn't want to erode or erase the progress we had made in terms of the disparity between what cooks and servers could make, because unfortunately in New York, it's illegal for cooks to share tips. So In addition to returning to that tipping model, we began to, to each shift, share a portion of the night's revenues with the kitchen so that they could benefit as well. Now, that said, the real answer that I've come to after all these years of trying to figure this out is that tipping is not in and of itself the problem. It's truly the inability legally to share tips, and there's a model that maybe you saw in California that is going to sweep the country in states where it's legal called heart of the house. Mm. And in heart of the house, as opposed to back of the house, front of the house, in heart of the house, there's a line on your guest check that says gratitude, also known as thank you. And whatever dollar amount you put there can be shared with everybody. Wow. who's, Who's an hourly worker, not managers, not owners, but amongst hourly workers in the restaurant. That should be the next model, because what that means is that since this country loves its tips, we love tipping, we love, we just love that model. And, you know, I I can tell you from five years of experience that it's really hard to take away someone's desire to say thank you with a tip.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, but. If that's the case, say thank you to everybody. The person who brought you your food didn't necessarily work any harder than the person who cooked it.
1: I always love hearing you on this because everything you're saying is completely sensical and rational and so thought out and based on your many, 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 many years of experience and so grounded in reality. And uh, yet no one takes the time to actually think about it. And so it's really always such a joy to hear your thoughtfulness on this. And before I let you go, you, you just reminded me of something that I wanted to ask you about when you were talking about um, thinking about, you know, ways in which we can think more about the environment and about our bodies and all of those things. And of course... Um, you rounded it out with really how we can think about uh, the people who cook for us and, and and bring us our food and are in the hospitality industry. But I have to ask you, um, 11 Madison Park announced this year that they're going to go vegan in their restaurant. And I understand that this is a restaurant that many people do not have access to and cannot go to, but it's a big thing in the food world. And I'm wondering what you think about this. And if you guys are are toying with the idea of Taking a leap or a risk or doing something that is so different like this?
3: I don't think we will have a restaurant that's exclusively vegan. Um, although I, I can say without any question that with each passing year, more and more people are choosing uh, either a vegan or definitely a vegetarian way of life. And a multitude of people are choosing to cut out, you know meat protein, let's say, or animal protein for more than one or more meals per week. Mm. And so I think that the, um, the move by 11 Madison park, which is a restaurant that we opened back in 1998, um, and then sold in 2011 is an important one. It's a restaurant that has constantly reinvented itself. It's in the DNA of the restaurant to reinvent itself. Um, and I think that, uh, It's going to make a lot of chefs and restaurants at a minimum say, hey, if they can do this for a $300-plus tasting menu and turn their entire restaurant into this, for God's sakes, we can at least have one or two menu choices that give people the opportunity who choose to eat in a vegan way to to do so at our restaurant. So I think it will have an impact whether or not you – Put your foot on the pedal all the way to the ground for just a little bit. I think it's already having a big impact.
1: It's so cool. I will say I have uh, I stopped eating meat when I was seven years old to the dismay of my, my carnivorous family. Mm-hmm. And I have been a vegetarian for 25 years. And it was not popular or cool to be a vegetarian in the 90s. And I would say that for the first 12 years of my vegetarianism, I would basically have to say, like, do you have bread in the kitchen? Do you have do you have cheese in the kitchen? Can you can you melt some bread, uh, some cheese on the bread for me? That was my menu option. And when I see something like this, you know, every year it has gotten much more fun and easier to eat at restaurants. And now it's not even something I have to think about. But when I see something like this, it just excites me so much. And when I hear you talk about where you think the restaurant industry is going, it excites me even more. And I'm just. Ever grateful for your mind and for your time coming on here and explaining all this to our listeners and to me. It's just such a treat, and I thank you so much for all that you've done for the city and will continue to do in in the months and
3: years going forward. Well, thank you, Emily, and welcome home to New York. Thank you. you got to be the Pied Piper and bring everybody else back with you.
1: I don't think I'm going to have to sell it so hard. I will sell it hard because it is just feels kind of heavenly to be back and the city really feels so alive and like such a breath and such a joy. But uh, I think everyone's sensing that and everyone's starting to feel a little FOMO, like the, the old New York FOMO that everyone else who lived anywhere else had. I feel like it's starting to creep back in. So you guys will hopefully be very busy in the coming months.
3: I'm, I'm taking that one right to the bank. <laughs>
1: Thank you to my guest, Danny Meyer, and of course, my co-host, Joe Hagan. If you like this conversation, please be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive. You can find those on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to our great producer, Brett Fuchs, and of course, the folks at Cadence 13. And thanks to our sponsors. Please support them any way you would support this podcast. We will see you right here next week.